working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everyone, I'm Zach Albetta. Welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. We're happy to welcome another legend today. It's Horacio El Negro Hernandez. He's been on the vanguard of Latin jazz and fusion drumming for almost three decades, has played with everyone from McCoy Tyner to Carlos Santana to Tito Puente, and is the author of the seminal method book, Conversations in Clave. He's just released a new big band album and DVD called Italuba Big Band Live. Our most recent installment on Patreon is a snare-tuning tutorial video by John Hull from Drum Paradise Nashville. To access this and the other bonus content we're adding monthly, go to patreon.com slash workingdrummer and become a patron. Really, any amount is appreciated. If you are able to help us out, even with a dollar a month, that'll go towards covering the expenses of bringing you this podcast every week, and you'll get bonus educational content from former guests every month. We've gotten a lot of good feedback on Patreon lately, and I wanted to read some that we also got on iTunes recently. Mercury8590 writes, This podcast is absolutely fantastic. I began listening from the beginning, and I have benefited from each podcast in some way. That's not hyperbole. I learned something about the music business, gear, recording, live work, emotional stamina needed to succeed, etc. Most importantly, it challenges me to keep moving forward on my own music career and journey. I truly encourage you to give this podcast a spin. Thanks for these interviews, Matt and Zach. Thank you. Thanks so much for that. Uh, We really try to paint a complete picture of life in the music business from the technical to the professional to the psychological and emotional, uh, and also to highlight how different everyone's path really is. So glad to hear we're touching all those bases. We really appreciate that sort of feedback, whether it's on iTunes or YouTube or accompanying a donation on Patreon. So please keep them coming. So here we go. Let's get to it with the one and only El Negro. What are you doing in Miami there? I am visiting my granddaughter. Oh, very cool. I'm my grandfather now. Man. Believe it or not. <laughs> Is that are yeah. you are you a brand new grandfather? Is that your first? Six six months, yeah, yeah, wow. first. Wow, cool. <laughs> Doing any playing there or just hanging with the family? No, just hanging with the family, getting ready to go to Europe. Ah, cool. So are you, you're touring with uh, the big band project? Not with the big band, but with my same band that works on the big band, the quartet. Gotcha, gotcha. Doing yeah. the festivals over there and. During jazz festivals, doing jazz festivals and stuff, yeah. Cool. Going to Croatia, actually a drum camp in Croatia with John Riley and Antonio Sanchez. Oh, wow. And Don Moyer, and then concerts with my band in Italy, and then a recording in Amsterdam. Man, busy summer. Yeah, it's going to be cool. Where do you live right now? I live in between here and Havana, but mostly here. In Miami. So wow. So you still you still kind of maintain a residence in in Havana. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to be as much as I can in Havana. Yeah. Because there's a lot of music there. Yeah, yeah. I've heard. Um, yeah. And I've I've I know a couple of people who have traveled there since uh, relations between the U.S. and Cuba improved right. a little bit. Um, and right. I've just heard nothing but amazing things about the music and the people and the food and, and everything. Yeah, it's cool. It's, but, but for the music, it's incredible. A yeah. unique place. Yeah. Unique place. Yeah. Have, what what uh, changes have you noticed since, uh, since the two countries kind of started being a little bit friendlier? Well, it was definitely... An avalanche of Americans, of American <laughs> people at the beginning when when the relations got better, as you say. 
but now it's not too good anymore, you know, right? Mm, yeah. It's, it's back to disaster. Right. <laughs> so it's no more... Like so many Americans, other things. No more American people in, in Havana. Mm. So was was there a time when, when you lived in the U.S. full-time, or were you always kind of back and forth? Oh, yeah, yeah. I am, I'm an American citizen. Mm-hmm. Too, and I was in, in America full-time. I'm kind of still being... But I was in America f- totally full time for almost twenty five years, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And where more did than you, twenty years for sure. Where did, did you spend most of your time in Miami during that time? No, no. Most most of my time it was in in the New York. Area, okay. Yeah. In New York City and in Jersey and yeah. Right, and. Uh, when when did you leave uh, Cuba, and what was kind of the the impetus to come to America full time? Well, I left I left uh, Cuba. I moved to Italy in 1990, December of 1990. You moved to Italy? And, yeah, I moved wow. to Rome. Okay, I lived in Rome for two and a half years before moving to New York, and it was kind of preparing myself for the Western world. Uh huh. <laughs> you know. And taking a crash course right. on Western civilization, <laughs> and then and then moved to New York after those two and a half years, just pursuing the music, you know, just pursuing the music world and mm-hmm. and musicians that I wanted to play with, and they went all in New York City. Right, and who were those? Then it was Michael Brecker or Michel Camilo or yeah. John Paritucci or, right. you know, Richard Bona or, you know, too many. Yeah, yeah, and you got to play with them all. I, I try. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so when, uh, when you left Cuba, at that point, were you already um, kind of like in Cuba when you lived there? Had you been playing just mostly salsa, mostly Cuban music, or had you already no. started to get into jazz and fusion? Oh, yeah. I was for 10 years in the band of Gonzalo Rubalcaba. Right, okay. In Havana, that was, a, you know, a very, already was very well-known fusion and jazz musician on the island. Mm-hmm. And also I was doing every single recording that was done in the biggest studio in Havana. Yeah. For who who might made I don't know more than 300 400 records wow I used to have a, a little mattress in the studio <laughs> to crash in between records wow for a couple of hours and then that's it let's do another record come on wow so and, I mean you're so you're so busy in in Cuba you're doing so many records you're touring with Gonzalo why why move like what what did uh America have that you couldn't achieve in in Havana. Well, because because it was after ten years, everything started to change. Mm. <clears throat> you know, Gonzalo, same Gonzalo was uh, producing the band. Then it was a quartet, not anymore. It was a septet. Things were changing. I had no more percussion player in the band, for example, mm-hmm. and. And also, I wanted to learn. We were very young. I was 20, 28, something like that. And I wanted to learn other kinds of music, too. Mm-hmm. You know, Cuba, Cuba, it's no secret that Cuba is the mecca of Afro-Cuban music. Mm-hmm. But but that's it. Right. It's, not the, it's not the mecca for jazz, or it's not the mecca for rock, or for folk, or for a million other styles of music that, that are there and, and are beautiful Right. that I wanted to, to learn and to somehow incorporate to mm-hmm. my playing. To. Yeah. Um, and did, who are your, um, like, your early drum set influences? Like, what drew you to the drum set as opposed to becoming a, a conguero or a timbalero? Right. I was always, since a little kid, since two years old, I was madly in love with the drums. Mm-hmm. And, and my house was a very, very musical house. My father was uh, the only jazz DJ that we had in Cuba for 30 years at wow. the time. 
He was he was playing on a on a on a jazz radio show. On a jazz radio show every single night, the only jazz radio show in Cuba. Wow! So he was the one informing every single musician about what happened in jazz. Right. Worldwide. Right. And and then my grandfather was a trumpet player of traditional Cuban music. So. So home was full of, of music all day. My father with his his old style of music that to me was the music of all people. Right. And my father with his jazz and as a little kid to me was the music of crazy people. And then was <laughs> he said jazz was, was the music of crazy people. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's very hard for a seven years old to understand John Coltrane. Yeah, like, yeah. Like that, you know? Maybe now we we understand it, but at six or seven years old, forget it. You uh-huh. just hear noise. Right, right. And then there was my brother, two years older than me, listening to the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and and listening to rock mm-hmm. mostly. You know? Yeah. And and that's how I started imitating the the drummer. You know, trying to play like Ringo. Right. Like Charlie Watts, then like John Bonham. And then I started <clears throat> studying music, studying percussion seriously. Mm-hmm. And and then after John Bonham, I went into a kind of music that was a little bit more uh, fusion-oriented, still still being rock. Yeah. Like, like Yes, or Emerson, like Palmer. Or, right. And all these kind of bands. I was a big fan of Bill Bruford. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and and right after yes, I was listening to maybe to Chic Korea Return to Forever. Yeah. yeah. With Lenny White and then I was getting closer to jazz. Right. And then it was the the, the times of the big four. And for me were the big four that is Billy Coban, Tony Williams, Steve Cat, and who is the full one? And Lenny White. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So they were like the four fusion drummers of the of the eighties and nineties. Right. And then and then I was already listening to jazz kind of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and just musicians, just musicians were trying to play Afro-Cuban music too. So it was kind of a full circle, right? You know, departing from rock and from Ringo into into Elvin Jones. Yeah. Right, and I I think it's fair to say that um, you were you were one of the first uh, drummers to really uh, combine you know the Afro-Cuban tradition with. Um, Basically, you know, the more more Western style of drumming, whether it was right. rock or jazz or fusion, was there a point? Right. Was there a point in your early life or your early development where you kind of saw like I can, I can combine these two things. I can take you know the music of my heritage and the music that I'm in love with, and uh, or was it just more of an organic kind of uh, meeting that happened inside yeah. you? There? It was it was an organic meeting in the sense that I have always been a fan of every kind of music, of every style of music. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't. I think it's only two kinds of music. It's for good music or bad music. Right, right. It doesn't matter what what style is. You know, so so definitely loving it and practicing every every different style and dealing with them then live and stuff. Of course, makes makes you grow, makes and it makes your style too. Everything you can throw inside the the pen mm-hmm. is gonna be helpful and more than anything in these times. Right, it's a time where every kind of music goes together. Yeah, and you mentioned you uh, you started you know studying music seriously at a certain point. Was was that at a school or a university or or with a, a mentor of some sort? My father took me to to my first lesson when I was eight. Hmm. But it was a, a teacher that it was a little bit too rigid yeah. for me. You know, to teach a little kid, you have to, you really have to have the kid having fun. Yeah. 
All the wives and kids is gonna get bored, and that's it. Right. So, so this teacher was asking me to play, a, a, you know, a single role for 30 minutes, very slow, and watching my hands and all of that. Yeah. And and that was not too much what I wanted to do. I wanted just to try to imitate Ringo. Right. Right. Me I too. Say, yeah. <laughs> and then that's it. I took to told my father I don't want to go anymore to, to lessons. Mm-hmm. And then I kept playing at home in pants and and pants until I was 13 that I enrolled myself in the School of Art in Cuba, the National School of Art in Cuba. Mm-hmm. And I went one year to the school and they threw me out. What for? <laughs> and the reason why they threw me out is because I never went to any class. Ah, oh, well, but that's, that's the, a good enough reason. <laughs> but the drum class. Right. <laughs> I used to go 8 in the morning until 9 p.m. Yeah. yeah. In the drum class practicing with my best friends and stuff. And, and that was it. At the end of the year, they said, no, we don't even know who you are. <laughs> You gotta go. <laughs> and I asked my teachers, so, so, so what should I do now? He told me, go and play. You already, you can make, you're a professional musician. Go out and play. Mm-hmm. And that's how my professional life started at 14. At 14? Mm-hmm. And so what were uh, the professional opportunities that were coming your way in Havana as a 14-year-old? Well, 14 year old, years old, I was playing with the with the most popular rock band at the time. The most popular rock band in Havana. Yeah, mm. it was called the Los Armas Vertiginosas. Los Almas Vertiginosas, actually, with the L-A-L-M-A, mm-hmm. Vertiginosas. What's the um, translation? Vertiginous Souls. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that last day, it was a kind of a, an underground band, very popular, but underground, totally underground. Uh-huh. And and then from there, I started just switching, switching bands, getting in new projects, new bands that were already official. Right. And then at 20, Gonzalo started his band. And we played together for 10 years until I was 29. Right, right. So you mentioned that that rock band was uh, underground. Um, Was was that because rock music just wasn't as popular in Havana, or was it, like, subversive to the culture, like playing this Western... Subversive to the culture. Really? Yeah, because of subversion to the culture, yeah. Yeah. So were there were there potential consequences for you, like if you were found out? Oh, I went to to a maximum security prison for two weeks. You did? Yeah, a fourteen just for playing drug and roll. Holy shit! Yeah, it was <laughs> it was no no well look, you know. Yeah, you're like playing the music of the enemy, kind of. Wow, what year yeah. was this? Hmm. This was maybe 79. Yeah. 1979, 1980. Yeah. Wow. So after yeah. after you got out of prison, did you continue playing or were you like... <laughs> yeah, I, I continued playing, but that band was over, actually. That was the end of the band, right? Right. There. Did, you, did you continue playing rock music, though? Like, did you continue subverting... No, no, actually, because it was not even more opportunities for that kind of music. It yeah. was maybe two or three bands only, and you knew you were going nowhere. Right, right. So <clears throat> so I went with a different bands, kind of pop and rock, for many years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And when you when you played in that rock band, like, was it... Was it just about the music, or was it also kind of a, a vehicle for you to make a cultural statement? It was all of the above. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you were yeah. Poli- you were politicized at, at that young an age. Right. Yeah. Right. Wow. Very politicized against what was happening in my country at that time. Mm-hmm. 
so 10 years with Gonzalo touring, right. touring the world making records um, right. and then uh, two and a half years in Rome did, like, did you play in Rome or were you just kind of oh, absorbing the I played Rome with everybody yeah and taught at the University of Rome and, and a percussion school named Timba also mm-hmm. for the two and a half years I was there hmm. So I was teaching like five hours a day and then practicing another three or four hours and then going to play a gig at night. Yeah. And then they, those were my days. Wow. Those, those years in Rome, yeah. Yeah. And how was, how was the scene there? I mean, it sounds like you got a, a, a crash course in, in a lot, just working every day. Right. Well, it was. It's a good scene. Rome still today have a very good, nice musical scene. Mm-hmm. But still, <clears throat> still, you know, the mecca of the music is in is on New York or LA. That's right. It. It's, right. You know, maybe London a little bit could be too. Mm-hmm. But certainly, Rome is not in the in the sequence of the big uh, music. Uh, those scenes yeah yeah Uh, um and what were your first moves when you moved to new york did you know anyone or or were you just starting from scratch i knew a couple of people and and coincidentally jeff ballard yeah drummer then with chico and with brad merdow and many luminaries he he sublet me his place for a month in Manhattan. Wow! So uh, so I arrived to New York and it was a drum set in this apartment in, and a million oh, jazz that's, records. That's amazing. Yeah, and then the day I arrived to New York, I called Paquito de Rivera and he invited me to do a recording the day after. Wow! In in Miami for for a record that he won a Grammy. Man. That year with a record entitled 40 Years of Cuban Jam Sessions. So did he know you at that point, or did he know of you, or did he, you just cold call him? <laughs> yeah, no, he knew me because of my father. Right. Radio show. Right. And he was a friend. He was a friend of my father for life. So. Yeah. And now that I think of it, I, I would imagine that your your father was engaging in kind of a subversive act with that jazz radio show, right? Uh, kind of, but... Uh, but it was all masquerade. Yeah. With the with the idea that jazz was the music of exploited people. Huh. Huh. Man. Yeah. So interesting. Um, so so you got you got a quick start in New York. You got off to a hot start. Right. Right. It was since the first day, and then probably when I returned returned from Miami. From doing that recording, then I got calls that same week. My dear friend Robbie Amin mm-hmm. also had a gig with Dave Valentine that he could, he couldn't do, and so he called me, passed me the gig, and then I was playing with Dave too, and then I started playing with Jerry Gonzalez. Yeah. Also, and with Papo Vasquez, and with all the Latin jazz scene of New York. Right. Then, yeah. Right. And in in New York, you were you were kind of um, in in the fold of like you said the Latin jazz because I know there's there's also a really vibrant like straight up salsa scene in New York. Right. Uh, but you were you were in with the the jazz, the fusion, the yeah, because the, the salsa the salsa world, the straight salsa world usually have no drummer, no no drum set playing. Right, right. It's timbales. And then it's a kind of music also that is more uh, related with a drum part that may be the same every night, you know, mm-hmm. drum parts for songs. Right. And right. I wanted to play more my instrument with more freedom and, and all the kinds of music too, not just Latin jazz. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so speaking of Latin jazz, you've you've just made this uh, big band record. Right. Talk about why you wanted to do a, a big band record and and just the development of it and how it's come to uh, to realization here. <coughs> right. This is a project that started ten years ago. 
at the Auditorium of Rome, mm -hmm. Italy. Uh, they gave us the orchestra of the auditorium to, to build this project with my quartet, Italuba, and their big band. And when we were in the middle of, of the recording, the crisis, the economic crisis, he did a little badly. Mm -hmm. And the auditorium uh, did not have any more an orchestra. They had to fire the whole orchestra. Wow because of the crisis so so the project was hanging and they just gave it gave to me when we when, when we had done and they said it's yours you can do anything you want with it so I took it to New York and and it was kind of difficult to record to with the home sections you know mm -hmm. So, in other words, I knew that, that the, the right musicians to play that music, they were in Cuba. Hmm. We have, we have uh, horn players. Our horn sections are very, very rhythmic oriented. So, yes. musicians with a very high level of rhythmic uh, education, you know. Yeah. And it's exactly what we needed to do to complete this project. So like a year and a half ago, two years ago in Havana, a producer friend of mine heard the project and he he totally pushed me into into doing the DVD, into recording it with an orchestra from there. And, and we are extremely happy with the result. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, we already, we already won the Cuba Disc Award which is like the Grammys of Cuba. Yeah, wow. With this record, yeah, last last month was the awards and we won the jazz category. Wow, congratulations. So we, we, thank you. We're pretty much looking forward to to a long life of this music. Yeah. So uh, uh, let me let me clarify. Did, you started recording this in, in Italy, but right. it got interrupted, so you had to re-record it recently in, in right. Havana. Yeah, I, yeah. Gotcha. Exactly. And both the audio and the uh, the DVD recording was done in Havana with those Havana yeah. musicians. Yeah, and it was all live. It's a it's a live DVD. Yeah. So it's a it's a record that have no overdubs, no man. Everything is played live. That's amazing. Yeah. So like what you hear on the record is is what you're seeing on the DVD. Exactly. Man, exactly. that's incredible. Was there yeah. a lot of a lot of rehearsal? I'd imagine. <laughs> We did a week of rehearsals, and then in the studio we play every song, maybe two, maximum three times. That yeah, was it. yeah. And I noticed like the the band is young guys for the most Very part. Very young guys. Yeah. Very young guys. <laughs> this band is is made of the best student out of the three music schools that are in Havana. Hmm. And the oldest one may have, I don't know, 24, 25 years. Wow. But, but these little kids now, they are the, the horn sections that play with everybody in Cuba, with all the salsa singers too, with all the, the, the big projects that involve horns. Right. So they are like the, the in-demand guys now of Havana. It's, it's beautiful to see that, as we said before, they are all super young guys. Yeah. And for your project, like, was, was there an audition process that you selected these guys, or were they just kind of recommended <coughs> to you and you no, knew about the, a couple the, of them? The orchestra exists like like an orchestra itself. Oh, okay. It's, it's the orchestra of a conductor named Joaquin Betancourt, who is a, a childhood friend of mine that he oh. was a musician for all his life. Yeah. So we know each other since we were kids and and I knew that his band was very, very good. So. Yeah, so you were able to kind of commandeer this orchestra for your project. Right. That's very right. cool. Nice. Yeah. And what about the the, com the composing and arranging? Like what, what kind of a hand did you have in that? And, and Italuba is a like, a like a cooperative band where all the music that we do is written by the four of us. Mm -hmm. But then my bass player, Danny Noel, and my piano player, Ivan Bridon, they they were responsible for the orchestral arrangements. They're very 
good musicians, the piano and the bass. Mm-hmm. And as far as the like, I was I was thinking the other day about how big band music and Afro-Cuban music have always sort of been drawn to each other. Um, right. You know, going back to uh, like Stan Kenton, Cuban Fire. Um, right. And since then, there have just been a ton of big band projects. Um, like, you know, Conrad Herwig and Brian Lynch did the whole right. Latin side of Miles thing, and right. Daphnis Prieto just released his big band album. Um, right. Why? What? What is it about those two traditions that, that you think have uh, have drawn them towards each other so consistently? No, Afro-Cuban music, as you said, since the, since the creation of, of Latin jazz, you know, since... Dizzy Gillespie and Machito, mm-hmm. all of those were big bands. Then it was Mario Bausad with his big band. Then it was Chico Farrell yeah. with his big band. Then it was Tito Puente. Right, of course. With his big, with his big band too. So it's a, it's a style that since the very beginning, it was it came out, actually it's a style that came out in the big band era. Mm-hmm. You know, in the heydays of, of big bands like Duke Ellington, or, or <clears throat> and so so it's it's a it's a marriage from from you know from the big from the very beginning. Right, and and now that I think of it, I mean that that marriage dates back to long before uh, relations between the two countries went south. Exactly. Um, because Ooh, long, long, long way before. Yeah, because until until Castro, the the two countries were like had a good partnership. There was tourism. There right. was trade. There was uh, so yeah. That makes total sense that that cultural right. exchange existed. Um, so, um, do you do you view uh, this project of yours as as just kind of your contribution to that long tradition of of uh, Afro Cuban big band music? Certainly, certainly, and it's also our ways to 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 document that that format format of, of orchestra into the music of today. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not a it's not a record of of classic Latin jazz music. Right. You know, it's modern, very modern Latin jazz. Yeah. Yeah. So it's certainly the same orchestra format, but with the music and the arrangements of today, with yeah. the sounds of today. This episode is brought to you by DrumSellers.com, the niche marketplace where drummers, drum retailers, and drum manufacturers buy and sell their gear. List your drums for sale for free, and the only fee is 4% if it sells. Simple. Check out all the new used vintage and custom drum eye candy at drumsellers.com. What year did uh, Conversations in Clave come out? What year was that published? Ooh, I don't know exactly the year, but it's probably around 20 years ago. Now. Yeah, yeah. Um, do, you, do you find that uh, people are still using that book? Do you, teach, do you still teach oh, out yeah. of that book? Ooh. Oh, yeah. It's nothing that I believe more than in that book. Yeah. Because... That book, it was a, <clears throat> it was an idea that came to me after practicing Jim Chapin's book. Uh-huh. And G- Jim Chapin's book, to me, still today too, still being the Bible of jazz drumming. Mm. If you want to learn how to play jazz, you got to learn Jim Chapin's book. Yeah. Is the book to achieve not just coordination, but to achieve the ability of listening to to simultaneous rhythms happening and going on. No? Right. Right. So uh, at the same time that it familiarizes you totally with the jazz symbol pattern, mm-hmm. which is maybe the main the main pattern in in jazz. Music, no? So conversations in clave a little bit is this same concept, but applied to Afro-Cuban music, you know, with the rhythm, how to get uh, free and be able to hear the clave and all the rhythms happening simultaneously at the same yeah. time. You know? Yeah. So, 
Um, and I, I was thinking about that too, about how, you know, jazz, cause my background is in jazz. Um, right. and like the, the jazz ride cymbal pattern right. plays the role in jazz that the clave plays in, in right. Afro-Cuban music. Like it's, it's oh. omnipresent. And even if it's not played explicitly, it's implied right. in, there. in right. everything you do. Um, so what is, you know, what is your advice to, uh, people who are just starting your book or just starting to get into Afro-Cuban music about, because I think like jazz beginning students tend to get sucked into, um, you know, the independence of it all and the improvisation right. of it all. Um, and whenever I have a student who's starting out jazz, um, I just tell them like, get that ride symbol down, just get your right. quarter note pulse sounding good, feeling right. good you know, listen to Kind of Blue over and over again. Because <laughs> right, um, right. that's where that music lives. What do you tell uh, students about that uh, when they're beginning Afro-Cuban music? Probably exactly the same. You know, of course, we have to get down all the quarter notes uh, together with the clavier, how those quarter notes swing in between 6, 8, and 4, 4 over the clavier. Right. And, and all of that, but but it's certainly a very important part, and, and one of the most important parts of learning any style, I guess, is to really get down with the music. Yeah, yeah. Same thing you say about kind of blue. We have our kinds of blues, right. you know, our records kinds of blues that that those are mandatory. So I mean, you can study all the coordination and all the of the world, but if you have no contact with the real music, you may never even realize how it's played. Right. So, so we have to combine. We have to combine all the technical studies and all the coordination studies and all of that. Certainly, with a <clears throat> with a big homework in the listening aspect of right learning. and what are a couple of the the kind of blue like records in the in the afro-cuban world well we have we have bands more than more than one record itself uh-huh. bands that have i don't know maybe 40 more than 40 records yeah and you can pick any any record of those people that that certainly you're gonna learn and you're gonna get the <clears throat> the feeling of how clave and how all this groove happens. You know, this is is coming from a style that we have that is called rumba. Mm-hmm. That is a style main, mainly played by percussion and vocals. It's no other instruments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but but that is maybe I don't know five or six percussionists and a big choir. Right. And, and that's it. Yeah. And what are what are a couple of those bands? I think I think most people have at least heard of, you know, Buena Vista Social Club. Um That's more that's a different kind of music. Right. That is a, a, a traditional Cuban music. It's that's more folk music. More folk traditional music, exactly. That was right. the music of my grandfather, for example. Yeah, yeah. But this one I'm talking about is a rumba. That is more a, a street kind of street music for for just percussion and vocals. Right, you know? right. And the bands are Los Muñequitos de Matanzas, uh-huh. for example, or Clave y Guabancó. Or a man named Pancho Quinto. Hmm. Any of those people, you can pick any of their records. Yeah. And they are all percussive treasures, you know, rhythm treasures. Right, right. For sure. Yeah. And you, you mentioned the the relationship between kind of triple meter and duple meter, the relationship between triplets and eighth notes. That's that's another kind of central, right. uh, you know, thesis of your book. Can you can you talk a little bit more about that and and um, you know, point listeners in in a, a direction to kind of be listening for that that overlap that uh, you know graying of the line, the blurring of the line between triple and duple meter in in right. Afro-Cuban music. Right. We have uh, two main meters actually, as you said. 
that is the triple feel and the and the straight A notes feel. Mm -hmm. We have music that is exclusively or, or mostly exclusively in 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 A notes feel, for example, mm -hmm. like regular A note feel, and that's more the salsa and all the dance music and all the, the pop yeah. Cuban music or Afro Cuban music, and then we have the world of 6-8 that is coming more from religious music uh -huh. music that came to us through the bata drums right bata drums yeah but that also have the, the clave uh, involved in there and then we have the rumba that is where these two uh, subdivisions live together you mm -hmm. know people sometimes phrasing in, in triplets uh, while the song is in A notes or vice versa they are phrasing in A notes where this, when the song is in the triple field right. so it's these two subdivisions happening constantly and it's very important to learn to learn the relation of between this quarter note that is actually exactly the same right for for both of the subdivisions, but but what happens with the clave and how the clave swings and it moves in between these two subdivisions mm -hmm. is very important to manage that under the quarter note. Right. You know, under the same quarter notes for both of the subdivisions. Yeah. And there's a there's a way to kind of <coughs> interpret the clave so that it, it fits in triple or duple. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And that's why that's why the most important part of, of practicing coordination is not to be able to play multiple rhythms with, your, with your, all your limbs, but beyond that is the ability of being alert and to be able to hear what's happening around you mm -hmm. at the same time that you are playing four different rhythms. Yeah. So it's very important to, to practice and to... <clears throat> to learn learn coordination always knowing that is this element of the listening thing that is very 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 important longer-term goals that you have for, for your career? Is there stuff that you haven't done yet that you still need to uh, check off the list? Definitely. It's always going to be new things. Yeah. I mean, especially in somebody like me that, that, that what I really love these days more than maybe more than anything is to, to shred. <laughs> you know, to be able to close myself in my studio and to practice and create and I mean, many things come to me from the drums. A lot of music comes to me through the drums. Mm -hmm. You know, compositions and rhythms and stuff. And so, so I'm tr truly trying to gain as much time as I can to to work on my craft and already preparing new materials, preparing a new DVD. Oh, cool! But this this time with a trio. Oh, good. Guitar, electric guitar, bass, and drums. And it's a little bit, uh, <clears throat> it's gonna, it's, it's sounding a little bit like, like an Afro-Cuban Tony Williams kind of wow. music. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Are you, uh, do you find that you, you run into, um, challenges or kind of bad habits that come up out of nowhere, uh, just as far as the drums are concerned? Um, because I saw, um, I've interviewed Peter Erskine here and, uh, saw him give a clinic in Atlanta and he talked about, you know, e even after playing drums his entire life, he'll, you know, he'll one day just 
become suddenly aware of some bad habit or some weird technique that he's developed. Are you, do you experience that? Definitely, but the only thing is that uh, that maybe many of those bad habits at certain point it's almost impossible to get rid of them. <laughs> so we better live with it and we learn how to <laughs> to make something good out of it. Right, know? right. But but of course it's I mean the drums is a very physical instrument. Too. Yeah. So as as we age just the way we see it is gonna change. Just the, you know, the way we deal with with the weight of the body. Yeah. Is definitely important. The yeah. way we set the drums, it changed too from when we are eighteen to where we are fifteen. Yeah. We try to, to play more in a in in a more economic way. Uh-huh. You know, the saving you learn how to save the the things for the moments that they are in need. Yeah. Really. And you're not just throwing, you know, hits right and left. So. Yeah. And do you find as you age, like, you, you know, we, we've been talking about um, physical changes, either in your body or, or on the setup, but um, how has your philosophical approach to the drum set and to, to your role in a band changed uh, over the years? That's a, that's a very interesting question, Zach, because... Because, for example, in this this big band DVD, I have two percussion players playing with me. Mm-hmm. So, so I play on the DVD on this format, more trying to just be the the anchor of the band and the the foundation and the the groove, right. the back the backbeat of the band. Yeah while the percussion players are playing the, the Afro-Cuban mm-hmm. part of it. So so that's something that Afro-Cuban drumming have too, that, that, that we have to be aware and we have to, to work and know that we have many different formats of playing. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes we have the, the chance of playing in a small format with even no percussion player. So right there we can take everything we have learned from the language of the percussion section and throw it into the drum set part. Mm-hmm. But if we play with a band, for example, that have a conga player and a timbale player, it have no sense that we double anybody's part. Right. So we have to create. <clears throat> then we have to create parts. That, that feeds and work in perfect harmony with the percussion section, mm-hmm. but without playing what they are playing. Right, right. You know, so it's it's important to know the language in order to be able to create these these parts that that goes with this percussion certain percussion parts for certain songs. Yeah, yeah. I think that's one of the main one of the hardest things about about Afro-Cuban drumming on, on drum set is that, um, you know, all of these, all of these rhythms and all of these styles come from, like you said, a percussion section with three or four or five people in it. And, and to be able to match, you know, that energy, that polyrhythmic content, that engine room feeling, um, is, is really hard and, and arguably impossible, you know, by one person on a drum set. Um, and so, like, do you find that um, in situations where you're, you're not playing with any percussionists, um, do, do you find that, like, leaning into the fact that there's only one of you, just, like, make, leaving it more sparse, still implying all of those percussion parts and, you know, alluding to them, but not feeling the pressure to play all of that content all the time? Right, you don't have to. You, the thing also is that that I am from the times that, that there was no videos, no yeah. internet, no nothing. We had a radio at home. So so we could not even see the music. So when you, you hear all these Afro-Cuban bands, 
you don't even know how many people are playing percussion in the bell. Right. You know, because he's a conga player, there is a bongo player that plays the bells, there is a timbale player with other bells, then is one singer playing the clave, other singer plays the wiro, yep. another singer plays the maraca. So it's all this percussion, massive percussion attack happening. Mm -hmm. Massive percussion attack. I love yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> like you don't know who's playing what. Right, right. You just hear this sound, this you know, this massive sound, and and that's what we always try to imitate. Mm -hmm. You know, the sound we were getting from the radio without thinking, oh, this is the weirdo, or this is the timbale, or this is a the heat that that is maybe with a high conga drone, that it could be with a low bongo. You yeah. don't know. If you don't see it, you don't even know. Right. You know, so we were imitating the groove that was coming out of these big percussion sections mm -hmm. more than more than than imitate what they played themselves, each of them, you know. Yeah. Well, it's a it's a really cool project. It's It's great music. The band is just murderers they're all amazing you heard <laughs> yeah you, you heard, you i, I watched some of the stuff on youtube and was just like holy shit these cats these young dudes are just slaying yeah. it's really yeah. it's really amazing so congratulations on a thank great project and thank you for your help yeah of course man happy to do it safe travels over the summer and uh thanks so much for talking with me thank you Zach. anytime anytime brother Thanks again to Horacio El Negro Hernandez for taking some time out of what sounded like a little family vacation there in Miami. Italuba Big Band Live is available everywhere you get music, and there are also some videos on YouTube from the DVD, so check those out. Very cool to see these really young cats in the band playing with him. Once again, if you want to help support what we do here... You can do so with as little as a dollar a month and get access to bonus content from our former guests. Lots of great lessons, tips, and tricks in there. Go to patreon.com slash workingdrummer. Get in touch with us at workingdrummer.net or on Facebook and Instagram. Share pics and videos of your gigs on Instagram using the hashtag workingdrummer, and we'll be featuring those in our stories. Also, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or YouTube, and leave us a rating and review on those platforms. This is extremely helpful to us. It helps new listeners find us, helps us grow. Matt Krause will be back with you next week, bringing you his interview with Toby Keith's drummer, Dave McAfee. Hope you check that out, and thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.